Welcome to Series 3 of the Tim Hill Podcasts. In the last two series, I've told you about my life. I've met many interesting people along the way who have become my friends. And what they all have in common is they all have fascinating stories of their own, which they are happy to share with you now. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to part two of Bill's fascinating story. In the last episode, we left Bill, he'd just passed out of firearms training and he was about to be posted. So, over to you, Bill. What was your next posting? I was, and I was put on the team at Downing Street, doing the protection there, a static protection initially, uh, at the points covering the um, premises. Who was, in the, who was the Prime Minister at the time? It was the lovely Gordon Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, he, he was Gordon. He, he was Prime Minister, but I tell you what, his wife and children are absolutely lovely people. His little kids, his kids were lovely little boys. His wife was really lovely, even friendly to us. So it's um, it was nice in that way because you get to know the families here because they they have to be there, don't they? So yeah, it's it's very bizarre. It, you know, um, the film The Shining. You got the kid on the tricycle wheeling around the hotel. Well, one of his little boys, I think it was Fraser used to have a tricycle and he's it's random you'd in down inside number 10 you'd see his little kid going down the corridor and uh <laughs> you'd be like it's a bit like what but it's in a strange way i think to yourself god that little child's growing up just playing inside downing street is what a what an odd memory to have when you're older that when you was a kid you lived in downing street it's bizarre isn't it and, absolutely uh, so you know i did i did that and whilst then on the department i did my uh, protection officers course so it became more of a one-on-one residential protection so you more like a bodyguard as opposed to an armed response officer at a location so it's a bit more in depth so i had to do them courses those courses were really good it's very physical and you, i learned a lot about you know the protecting the principal more a one-on-one physically you know where you'd have to put hands on them just to protect them and and, and and tactics, different tactics. And that's when it came to going to Savile Row to get a suit made. You get given a credit voucher from the department and there's a specific shop in Savile Row. Well, very well established one. You go there with a the voucher and they measure you up and they design a suit so that when you're in plain clothes, you can have a Glock um, on your hip underneath your jacket. But the, it's really clear. I don't know how they do it, but the cut of the suit hides the bulk so that it looks like you're just wearing a jacket, a suit, and it, it doesn't stand out, you know, because they're quite bulky when you think about it. I had some suits. Yeah, it doesn't matter what sort of holster you've got, it, it, whether you stick it in your trousers yeah. or outside, I can, I can see that. Yeah, I used to have, I, for plain clothes, you have, we, we, they gave us, they issued us a holster that would go on your belt, um, but sort of angled forward more rather than pulley up one. Did they give you the sunglasses to go with it? The guy, nah, no. Or, or is that just Americans? That's definitely an American thing because I got to work with the Secret Service quite a few times, and um, they are. Well, I'm sure you, you've you've come across working with the American military and officials and stuff, and uh, they are very over the top a little bit, don't you think? Sir, yes, sir. I was like, all right, mate. Sir, yes, sir. Yeah, cool, nice one, mate. And uh, it was. You know, why are we wearing glasses at night time indoors? You know, it's silly. A Ted gung-ho. Do you have an eye problem? But it, it looks cool, I guess, but yeah. I don't think it looks cool. <laughs> we, all eye protection we have, we'd, have, we'd put goggles on if we are doing some kind of tactical thing, and that's purely to protect your eyes, not to look cool, and you look stupid, you know, with the whole 
you know, I've got these ballistic helmets and goggles and balaclava things and it's for your safety not to look cool. It does look cool. Sunglasses and putting your finger in your ear looking around is so silly. But no, we worked with them. I did I did that. So we did, you could do, um, the course for that was a lot about reconnaissance, uh, recce in um, a location if your principal was going to go to, doing evacuations. So obviously, like in Downing Street, for example, you have multiple routes in the building to get the Prime Minister out or to safety or down to Pindar, the nuclear base under MOD. You know about Pindar, don't you? Yeah, but I don't think you should tell too many people about it. No, I'm not going to. No, no, no. But there, <laughs> there is there is, there is, is procedures in place, and you have to learn all of those. And that's really good because we did it monthly. We had to run through certain procedures monthly um, to keep on track. So when on, on, on the face of when people go to down the street and they look and they go, oh, it's a gate and a road and there's some policemen stood around and oh, there's some machine guns. You don't see 90% of what's there. You'd be amazed inside just how far it goes in many, many different ways. It's, it's a really, yeah, it's interesting to know. And I also got to do, I had to cover at times with royalty because there was, obviously there's so much overtime all the time doing that kind of work because um, there was always a need for extra people and there's only so many people you've got trained. So I got to cross over and do overtime uh, at Palace's Balmoral. I did an attachment up there for three months. That was brilliant. I loved it up there. Yeah, it's really you get to you get to be around. And when Obama came, when he first became president, he had his state visit. I um, did an attachment with Secret Service for two weeks while he was here. Well, all one thousand of them. Yeah. Well, the thing is, that's this is the thing. Oh, I don't know if I should say this, but put it this way: I, I know on on the military side, there was rumours that there was about nine hundred of them stationed in the perimeter of Buckingham Palace when he was there. Yeah, there was... Um, you have, on state visits, you will have an, a detachment of the SAS in the basement, and they're always nearby, as you know. For the state visit of him, British officer had to be partnered with a Secret Service officer because we carried more authority in our country because depending on what level they were, they had different status. Obviously, the initial team around the president would have full immunity to use do their job, but obviously the... So um, obviously I don't want to say too much, but it was very it was it was a good experience to have, and it was nice to work with them, and they were really lovely. When when, when it was over, they like thanked us. They were so grateful that we had helped them, and so that was nice. But they were very twitchy. I think as the they were very I don't know. I, th- I suppose it's just their the mentality of they just assume everyone wants to kill their president regardless of who's helping them. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, and regardless of the president. Yeah, exactly. Regardless who it is, and, and they were they were they were good guys. But like you say, they have their little quirks with the glasses, and so yes, sir. And it was hard sometimes to have that British banter between them both. Do you know what I mean? Like when you crack a joke, they look at you. Don't sometimes whether yeah. you're joking or they they what? don't get um, sarcasm at no. all. The Americans no. exactly, and, and it's great fun working with Americans because you can use so much sarcasm with them. And they, you just know that it's going way above their heads. Yeah, they it's just look funny. at you like you're mad, don't they? And yeah. you, it's, it's self-humouring, isn't it? But I, I think I was, I'm lucky, in a way, because it was a nice. It's something, you know. I had two weeks state visit of Obama. You know, it was great. And um, and again, when he came back, I I did a bit of an attachment. So I did that for a few years, and then I went on to. I I wanted to go more, back to, like normal. 
everyday people type thing. So I I went and did the um, armed response vehicles. So we, we would of the of the department. I don't know if you ever see in London the red police cars. They're police cars, but they're red instead of white or silver. They were red. Oh, I thought they were fire chiefs. Well, that's what I used to. Someone used to pull up. I <laughs> oh, get in trouble for this, but I remember being in traffic here and someone like waving at me at the queue, and I opened my window and he went, "Excuse me, mate, why is your car red?" And I went, "We're the fire police." <laughs> <laughs> and, he went, <"Huh?"> <laughs> and he laughed and we drove off but but um no red was supposed to when the diplomatic protection group was formed i think if i remember it was it the um vienna is it vienna convention or something like that there's some some law that made it diplomatic the diplomat laws you know and they made the cars red for that department to show that the officers in it are diplomatically protection trained so it made it's something to do with like make the embassies and the ambassadors feel more secure that they can visually see that there is that resource that will come and look after them in in a foreign country. Yeah, that distinction of um, diplomatic immunity. Yeah. So we were specific. If there was an issue of diplomat or anything, that we would have to go because we would have more knowledge of the treaties and 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 things and how to deal with them because we'd have training on how to have diplomatic conversations with ambassadors or people with immunity and stuff because obviously we're representing the UK in an issue that to avert a diplomatic issue you know so and that was good and every any time you'd go to an embassy often they'd set their alarms off by accident so obviously that would be an armed response anyway and it would be us so we'd go to them uh, sometimes you go to embassies and you do have people I remember going to one embassy and uh, there's a man in the reception waving a machete around because he was angry about something and he was inside the embassy so we had to deal with him he got arrested yeah, so did that, but what actually started to happen as like the international terrorism threat was getting worse and worse and worse, we'd had the London attacks. So we started to be used to do more armed response in general to back up the CO19 armed response who cover London. So we kind of overlapped. So you'd, you'd done the same training, you know, albeit for that particular thing. Our ARVs, ARV armed response vehicle, would start to be used more with the regular ARVs because they, they overlapped. They covered all of London, whereas we covered mostly central London or wherever there was embassies. I would have to regularly go and check MI5, MI6, and just check in with them and go in and make sure they're okay and all that kind of stuff because we had set duties each day to make sure we had covered, but also respond. But, but things, the real world was happening in between. So we were, it was stupid to not use an ARV if there's someone waving a gun around in Tesco's and you're around the corner, you know, it, it, it overlapped. And what eventually happened is it just they just merged to become one. So it's all, all one group now, is it? Yeah, so kind of. The ARV element went merged. So you don't see the red BMW police cars anymore. You'll see a red van. That's just that's like moving you around from different points. That's just like moving officers. But um, so we became merged. And then I, I was involved in an incident, shootings and stuff. So obviously I had my, um, I entered a PIP procedure. This is post-incident procedure. Yeah, I'm not talking about that much. But long story short, I did my job, and um, you know the con- you know the, the the consequences and the the investigations afterwards had to happen. Yeah, and it wasn't nice. Um, now I started having issues at home, split up with my, you know, I had two children had issues, so I decided that I needed to change my job to get a, a bit of a more stable shift pattern. Where because we we had an expectation of a five week period, you got. 10 days, 10 rest days in within five weeks scattered across. But there was an expectation to volunteer for at least eight. And if you didn't, they would make you work eight 
and give you like really quick changeovers and, and things like that. So you had to, there was an overtime book that you could put in your preferred shift on your days off so that you would juggle your life better. So on a personal level, I was, I, my, my little boy, his first year of him growing up, barely saw him because I was always working. Yeah, so the, the, you know, with the commute and that. The job does take it out of you after a while. Yeah, it does. And you were living in Portsmouth all this time, just working in London? Yeah, I commuted, yeah. yeah. Always have done. There was a guy on my team. Used to, it's funny enough. We was at school together, and we ended up working on the same team, getting the train every day together. It's bizarre. You <laughs> go to school with someone, end up working with them. And um, but I didn't mind. I thought I've done all these things. My back was still niggling. I mean, the body armor was like fifteen kilograms itself. And then when you when you go to the armory and you you put your magazines on and you stick your taser, you put your spare Glock on your chest, you get your Glock on your leg, you got the holster on your other leg, you got your your um, MP5 strapped round you, which we went on. To, we had Glock, the Glock 17, the Taser X26, MP5, and we started to get the G36 rifle as well as a, as a preferred over the MP5. But I personally preferred MP5. So yeah, by the time you got all your kit on, it weighed a ton. And like you were very robotic. The body armour was so rigid because obviously it had additional plates in. It's got a pull-down thing at the front to cover your groin. The uniform services have got a really bad sense of humour because I said to the lady, have you got a longer one? <laughs> So that was that was that was hard. So I found in the cars we had BMW five series, um, and we went on to BMX fives, and they were really great cars, very fast and very stable, and they were good for the job because they were big and heavy, and the cars themselves could in the back they were designed to hold weapons and and and, and bits and bobs. So it was it was you know there was no expense spared on firearms departments. That's that's the good thing when it comes to the money in the vehicles when you're out in the real world. Especially with the terrorism threat going up, money, more money went into the department. But I found in the cars, in the car, we had these great cars, really fast, really straight, stable, done the job well. But they still had the sports seats, like a buckety type seats in them, just because that was the the, the level of of like um, spec that they bought for us. Mm, I guess that makes it really difficult for wearing all that kit. Yeah, you're back. And like I used to, with my body armor, it was so rigid, it was like flat. So there was always a gap behind my back and you would close the door in the car and you got your Glock on a leg holster by your thigh. I used to dig in. It was just like, so you'd sit a bit funny driving these cars. They were automatic, which was good because it was one less thing to do with all your legs moving around. And I used to really struggle on my back. It used to really twinge a lot. And obviously I didn't want to say too much because <laughs> obviously it's my job. But you, you, as soon as you got, if you've got a back injury, you can forget being a firearms officer you got a mental health problem. You can forget being a firearms officer. And um, so it was all built for me. It's all building up over time. Um, but I think with age, as you get in your 30s, you start to, to realise you're not Superman. You start to realise you're not invincible and that these things are starting to niggle and your luck's running out. Um, so, I, so with the whole personal life, I left. I put in a request to just go. I looked to see what was available. There was a 12-hour shift pattern. Four on, five off, four on, five off at the main um, control, control room for covering London. I didn't really want to do, but it was that or not seeing my children. You know, I've done all these things that I've done. I can go back to it one day when they're a bit older. It gives me some time out and it gets me to concentrate on my personal life a bit better and get some more days off. And because all that overtime I was earning, God knows where it went. You know, I was earning a lot of money, like five grand a month take home. I don't know. I know we were like buying things that were needed or decorating and whatever and all that, but God knows it was just not. But do you know what? 
I've learned then, I was what, 30-something? I think that it doesn't matter how much money you earn if you can't, if you haven't got a life. If, you haven't, if you're not spending time with your family and your friends, what's the point? Why, why are you doing this? You're just killing yourself, you know, you're wearing yourself down. So I changed over to, they were all like shocked that I was leaving. And I was like, so I told, no, I was told them, so I need to talk my life out, basically. It's just, I'm doing the right thing. It's, what, what do we do? Just if, you know, the worst thing to do would have been to have not sorted my, trying to sort my life out, put my life first. That would have carried over at work and I would have done something wrong. And, you know, that's not responsible, is it? It was, it was sad because I've, all these things I had to give up and like hand it all back and say, I'm going. So I ended up working at this, um, it's like a call centre. <laughs> so it's just on the, you was the guy on the radio in the control room, you know, giving out the info and, and stuff. It was a nice change. It did enable me to kind of get my life stable-ish so I could arrange childcare and custody and sort all the custody stuff out with her. But it just, it was soul-destroying, really soul-destroying. And I found I was sat in a chair more, um, which was really, really niggling my back even more. And it was around that time that I think my mind started to have time to catch up on everything I'd seen and done. And um, that's when I first realised, well, in hindsight, that maybe there's PTSD coming. Yeah, it was it was a point in my life where all these things started to catch up. I think that's where we kind of met in hospital. No, that was quite a bit before. It was... Um, all right. Yeah, I'd, I'd had some illnesses and whatever. <sighs> Tried to... Um, I got past it all. I had all these, like, tests and whatever and and stuff and again put on a, a second kind of phase and went back to normal policing for a while and then the olympics came and i was seconded back to firearms anyway <laughs> so i worked uh, for three months every single day no day off 16 hours a day doing um firearms cover for london and the olympics and there's things that happened in the olympics that we're not really supposed to talk about but you know on the face of it, it was good. Well, like the, the military having to step up to run the whole thing. I'm so glad they were because, do you know what, Tim? Without the military, things would have happened because we they alerted us to some things that we had to respond to. And if it weren't for their, like on search points, for example, if it weren't for their experiences abroad at checkpoints, people would, if it was G4S, they would have got through. So it was, it was, they did, we actually felt safer as the police officers who were covering certain venues and locations. We were responsible for the area of the Mao Horse Guards Parade. There was like that enclosure where the beach volleyball arena was made and we had soldiers there doing all the checkpoints. It made, actually made us feel, I don't know, it, it made it easier for us knowing that we got them guys there. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? The, they got the military there doing their job. We had that responsibility to... Yeah go and deal with anything but you knew you had they were there you know because yeah like we used to say like if one of us gets knocked down a soldier will pick up our gun and help us yeah and that was good whereas somebody from g4s would just run away wouldn't know what to do with it yeah yeah but we were all really really pleased in fact that that kind of happened and i'm not sure the soldiers weren't best happy about it but well it put an awful lot of pressure on us at the time i can remember that yeah it, it was for for us it felt more well, it gave us a bit of backup, I thought. But men- mentally, anyway, I-, I thought for me, even though we didn't actually have to do work with them because they had their own duties for search points, but I knew that I didn't have to worry too much about how was the searching going. I knew that people that were in the venue were most likely absolutely fine, didn't have nothing on them. So that when we, because we went in and out the venues all the time just to patrol it, you know? So I knew that when we were, anything inside was definitely going to be sterile. So me walking around was safer. 
even though I had my guns and whatever, I knew the people in there were decent and they was checked. You know, I didn't have to worry so much about who would want to shoot me or blow me up because I was beyond the military. So I'm really great, really yeah. grateful for any of the, the soldiers that were there if they do listen to this. Because yeah. they were great, and they, you know, they were nice guys and girls that we spoke to, and we had a bit of banter here and there, you know. Especially, it's especially funny when one of them saluted one of our inspectors, because because uh, he had pips. <laughs> he was like, huh? Because <laughs> technically you are supposed to, but we, we in the police you just don't salute unless it's yeah. a, a parade. So it was that was that yeah. was quite funny to see. So how did you get to where you are now? So after the Olympics. They did a major cut on funding for firearms officers. And those of us who were seconded were sent back to your original places and your funding funding to maintain your skill level was taken away. So you had to, whenever your ticket was going to expire, you'd have to reapply for a job if you want to do it, which in hindsight, with the terrorism issues that happened later, they suddenly had to change those rules and extend people's things. So I, I went back to more on the intelligence side of things and I was I went to a department that I was doing intelligence gathering and creating briefings for um, crime. Well, not organised crime, but it was becoming organised in central London and deploying people to certain areas that needed covering. And I had to go to meetings and whatever to request resources to cover things. So it was more of a managerial supervisory type thing I went into. And that was around the time that I met you but obviously that by that time my back had completely given in and I ended up in hospital I had surgery on my back in 2015 I was paralyzed for a month afterwards it kind of came back apart from my right leg I had a walking stick for a while and then after six months didn't need the walking stick but my foot has been numb ever since my right foot it's bizarre I had a few other procedures in hospital uh, didn't really work and then in 2017 I think it was wasn't it that um my my, my legs just went numb again for no reason whatsoever. They just couldn't feel him anymore and I couldn't walk and I ended up in hospital. And that's when, I think a few days later, you ended up in hospital in a bed opposite me and we were there for six weeks on a ward, weren't we? Yeah, I know. <laughs> cool, didn't we have some fun on that ward? Do you remember that guy, Gary? Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, we stitched him up a few times. Yeah, I know. Mind you, he was a bad bugger. He was horrible, wasn't he? Mm. Do you remember that? I remember that time in the night time Well, I said across the room, Gary, if you keep talking to the nurse like that, I'm going to make my legs work and come over and drag you out. And, oh, sorry, sorry. I was like, you don't talk to the nurses like that, mate. I don't care how injured I am. I will crawl across the floor yeah. and throw you out of this bloody hospital because it was horrible, wasn't he, to them people? Really, and they were lovely nurses. Oh, he was. Yeah. yeah. And he was, he was still doing his drugs. He was still doing his drugs in there. Yeah. Do, do you remember when they moved into a side room and me and you got eyes, we had a Zimmer frames. I mean, Nil by mouth. <laughs> yeah, and we changed his thing to nil by mouth, and he wondered why he weren't getting any food. <laughs> and do you remember the head nurse come to interview yeah. me and you to ask yeah. if we did it? And we denied. We denied all knowledge of it. We couldn't get about. We couldn't get that far in our Zimmer frames. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh yeah, I was an absolute bitch. God, it, looking back, mate, me and you had a Zimmer frame. That was bizarre, isn't it? But it was. I tell you, then it was. It was a. Uh, I remember leaving hospital after six weeks and I was driving home and I saw a traffic light and it was the first time I'd seen the colour red for a long time and I forgot about colours because it was such a yeah. bland room, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. The, the nurses had pale blue. The room was cream. Everything yeah. was... What a, what a, the, the, and the food, the food was bland as well. Grey. <laughs> no windows really, was there? I can't remember the windows. But I'm so glad you were there. Yeah. Oh, my God. And do, do, I, I'll never forget the day you left... 
you you got you got you got parole and was sent away and got there some guy came in that night do you remember and i've sent a video of him oh i, I can remember that i can see it now oh i really felt for you with his tambourine i, I was going to come and break you out <laughs> <laughs> bloody hell and it wasn't his fault he was yeah injured ill special needs and he had a tambourine didn't yeah. he and that was his way of communicating but it was just relentless, and I just yeah. all those drugs they had us on. Yeah, I know. As well, I mean, I was on so much morphine; it just didn't work. Yeah. But that hospital was great because they taught me to walk again. It was like they said that the nerve signals had just told my legs, "Nah." And they were pretty brutal in the, down the old uh, the physio department. Mm. I, I remember going down there every other day, and oh, they was absolutely yeah cruel to me. I thought they were really cruel. Yeah. But yeah, but it, cool it, to be it got kind. Me back to where I am now. Yeah, so absolutely. after that, after the hospital, I I stayed where I was kind of at work. I was put as permanently adjusted, restricted, which meant I'm not allowed ever to go out again. Never nothing at all because I'm injured. It's, it's permanent. It's not. They, the hospital said it's never going. I'm not allowed any more surgery. Um, too high risk on my spine because I've got permanent nerve damage. I was diagnosed with failed spinal surgery syndrome, which means you're buggered. Uh, I've got permanent damage, nerve damage in my L5S1. So I uh, currently I've got. My right calf has got muscle atrophy, so it's a bit smaller than my left calf. It's died. I've got no ankle reflex in my right foot, uh, so I fall over a lot when I walk. <laughs> I've got numb, numb toes, numb foot, and my skin on my right side of my body just feels a bit numb all the time. I've even, <laughs> I've even been given a blue badge for my car. <laughs> I feel like a right idiot, you know. Um, <laughs> I've got to apply for mine yet. Yeah. Uh, I had to go and do an actual <laughs> assessment. Elsewhere parking, I suppose. The woman made me walk around the, um, the assessment centre with her and then just so she could see how I walk and how far and wobbly. Mm. But um, so I'm, I was supposed to be, I was sent to St. Thomas's to have this thing called a spinal, spinal cord stimulator implant. So it's like a mini pacemaker, but they put it in the lower back and wire it to your spinal cord. And what it's supposed to do is send vibrations or signals into the dead nerve just to give it a bit more, give that leg muscle a bit of power, but equally will block the neuropathic pain going to your brain so that you don't notice the pain so often. But then the COVID thing happened and that's kind of fell by the wayside. But I, I, I manage, I have painkillers all the time. I still have the nerve blocking ones. I can walk. Mm. I just can't walk for long or very far. I could jog, but not for very long or very far. And I will. That's a bit more than I can do at the moment. <laughs> feel it for. Yeah, it's like I have it. I could do if I if I say, for example, I have a day where I will do things and try and do as best as I can and just manage it for the next two or three days, I will be in agony and I won't be able to do anything. But the, the consultants have said to me that you can't make it worse. So it's a case of living with it. So if, if you do have a day where you force yourself to maybe jog or walk a bit fast or or just limp and just gr- grind through it, that's better for you. Like for the rest of your body and your cardio and all that kind of stuff then having a day of, of pain because you're going to have pain anyway so i'm in that situation where sometimes i do need a walking stick if it's a particularly bad day because my I, I, my ankle goes a bit wobbly so yeah I, i'm managing it and and you know i get around and whatever i've learned to live with it and a lot of it is accepting it but since the time of meeting you and and all of this now i was also diagnosed with um complex ptsd for all the everything that's happened in my life like career-wise and personally and things that I've dealt with and seen and done that I'm stuck with that as well so I'm in this cycle with um the PTSD that comes up you know nightmares the flashbacks and the memories 
mix that in with a little bit of guilt, <laughs> mix that in with a little bit of frustration that I can't do my job anymore to make those things better or, you know, like you think I could have done that better or that should have happened better. There's no way I can now. So that's kind of frustrating. So you put you in that circle of doom where you try and be positive. The pain puts you back down. You end up back in that negative. So then you try and be positive. I know you, I know, I know you've got it and you're left frustrated. And, and when it comes to my job, I'm not allowed to do anything operational. I'm not allowed to do any investigative work. I'm not allowed public contact. I'm not allowed out. So how on earth am I supposed to do my job? It's got to the point in the last few years where work would just say, well, nothing we can do for you. There's nothing, nothing you can do. Just do some admin uh, and just sit there, you know, look busy. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sit and look busy. I think it's wrong. The, you know, the, the legislation for police officers, you know, being fit for duty clearly described that if you're just unfit for duty, then you should be medically discharged. So I've had a bit of a battle with that, but I'm now in the final stage where all the paperwork's now been sent across to the medical people, medical board, outside of the police. So I'm imminently waiting for um, my appointment to be retired and got rid of. It's not what I wanted, but I've done over 20 years. It is what it is. I've just accepted now that, you know, I'm not Superman. I'm not invincible, but I've got the opportunity now to, to start afresh and maybe use my experiences to make you a better person or or move on in the future but what I did a couple of years ago I had this kind of mental battle of like accepting that I can't do things anymore accepting that I've done things and accepting my career is effectively over in terms of I'm gonna I'm gonna become their office guy you know the station cat and I thought well if I leave the police what am I gonna do like other than military security police work it's all pretty much the same stuff what am I going to do because I can't do that really anymore I shouldn't be doing that and for mental health wise I probably should not I should try and distance more and do something different and I thought well the only thing I've ever done is the um acting (laughs) the acting stuff at college and then I watched a documentary on telly it just happened to be Alan Rickman died the actor and he was 33 he'd never done any training he went to theatre with his wife he was like my god I want to do that and he took and he just did it he decided one day that's what he's going to do and you know he's one of the best people on stage and screen isn't he he was and I thought to myself hang on a minute I've had some training in the last 20 years or so of the police and stuff I've gone through situations where I've had to act and be a certain way to just survive or to get people to do what I need them to do and and to things I can use maybe my life experiences in that respect in acting because you have to draw I remember in training when you if you're trying to portray an emotion, you've got to remember something so that you can bring it out. And I thought, maybe I'll give that a go. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll have a go. Look in that aspect of life to do with film and TV and acting and stuff, because it's kind of my interest from young. Um, I've been friends with a guy called um, Jeff East for quite some time, about 15 years. I met him years ago. He was um, a child actor in Hollywood. He played Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, and the young Clark Kent in Superman the movie. And I gave him a text message and said, like, I'm I'm going to be leaving the police. I need to do acting. How the hell do I get back into it type thing? And he was like, are you serious? And I was like, yeah, of course I am. <laughs> I'm just trying to, th- what can I do? You know, I need, I need a new focus. I need something to aim for. And long story short, he gave me some number of some guy, his agent guy, and I phoned him up and he hung up. A few hours later, he phoned me back, apologised, said, sorry, I was just checking your, it's not a hoax call, and your jet. I spoke to Jeff. Anyway, long story short, game his details, and he goes, I'll leave it with me. And fast forward th- th- two or three years, I've um, been in a few 
major films, TV episodes. I've managed to get myself a part as a main cast on Amazon Prime for a TV show. I, my last thing I did was the Batman movie last year. I just played the role of a thug. I think, I think you might get typecast there. <laughs> so, yeah, all very small parts and stuff, but you know, I've got myself a bit of a bit of. Well, I, I've been a serial killer in a TV series. I'm a bit of a in, on the program Silent Eye on Amazon. I'm there's something sinister coming. I was in Dumbo, Mary Queen of Scots. I was the Queen's bodyguard, so that was quite funny. That was filmed in Glasgow, and I've done a film called um, Last Night in Soho. That's coming out next year now. And I was a Rialto Club gangster again, like a mafia geezer. I get to like, yeah, it's it's good. It's great because you get to like meet all these famous actors and work with them and that kind of stuff. And it's really enjoyable. The pay is good. It's um, but it's like random and it's like a pay. I see it as like a paid hobby because, like I say, I'm not like I'm not Tom Cruise, am I? But I'm getting, I'm starting to get these little parts in play things. I got contacted by some production company recently for Sky TV, and I did a I played a part of a reconstruction role play for World's Britain's Most Evil Killers, and I had to have I looked like a fat Super Mario brother because I shaved my beard off and I had this moustache because it looked like the guy, you know. And it's just strange. I see people, family, I saw you on telly, and it's like people, it's weird. But like, I had to do a business interest at work to cover my taxes and all that kind of stuff. But it's like a paid hobby, and I said I said to work for the PTSD. I find when you do acting, it helps you leave yourself I cannot be I'm not Bill or Will that day I'm this person and I can I feel like I can escape so it's it's nice it's a nice to get out of it so I'm I've done rehearsals before it's a way of being treated yeah it's it's like it's a coping mechanism for me because I get to be somebody else whilst creating something and and and, and learning and meeting different people and and experiencing things you know I've been to all these different studios now we're very lucky that a lot of the American films are made here now. Uh, beginning of next month, I've got uh, six weeks booked to film a part of a NYPD detective in a major Marvel Cinematic Universe film, which is crazy. Like I say, not a massive part, but it's still a part nonetheless. And to be on set and see all these things and be part of it, it's bonkers. You know, I remember a few years ago I went to the cinema with my sister and I totally forgot about this film I'd done and the trailers come on and oh my god there's me like that really loud and pointed to myself on the screen I felt like a right wally my sister punched me in the arm she goes oh you're so embarrassing I was like I'm sorry I'm sorry I forgot I just I was just totally forgot it was there and <laughs> and um I kind of hid my face for the rest of the time because people were looking at me but I felt like a right idiot but it's just a really fun hobby to do so I think when I finally get free from and retired because I'm I've been working from home for a year now. I do admin on the laptop. I don't actually do anything. Mm. I'm just waiting, you know, and I know COVID's dragged it out, but I'm just waiting for that retirement sign off. So I want to, I'm thinking of putting myself up for some more auditiony type things. I'm thinking of maybe going to college, learning some more filmmaking, editing, graphics type stuff, because I've enjoyed doing that. I've made my own film in this past year, like my own short film, which I wrote, directed, filmed. Yeah, there's a lot of online courses that you can get yeah. uh, for that sort of thing. I'll send you a link. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's just it's just something different, you know. Like you you've you've progressed, you've retired, and you you got into your sound mixing and your radio and your producing, and it's it's something you can do. And I think all these skills and experiences we both had for your military, the policing, it makes you I don't know a bit more grounded. So when you when you're focusing on something new to learn, you can. It's people don't realise. You think these skills are just one dimensional but they're not you can actually put them into other things and 
like your discipline and dedication that you've had in the military for yourself is now making you able to sit and edit, do your bits and bobs for this podcast. You know, I think, and it's, it's good to share things. And I think what I would like in the police that I see for people, because I'm going to be one of many coming, it's always going to happen, but they do need to focus more on the fact it's okay to be not right. It's okay to say that bothered you so that you get the help at the time to prevent years later, they all just kind of pile up on you and it's too much. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think the more that people take away the stigma of mental health issues, particularly when it comes down to PTSD, most of us have been through some sort of traumatic incident in our lives that has an effect. And if, if, if you can sort it out at the time, it makes it so much easier to deal with, sort of build up over years and years and years. And I think a lot of high-profile people are promoting it now. I mean, we've got the, the Royals, William, Kate, well, Harry was until he got in with... Until, yeah, you can see the big thumbprint on his head, can't you? <laughs> I, I, you look at him and you think he regrets some of that. Yeah, I think he does, yeah. I can tell. But there you go. Because he's a lovely guy. I met him a few times and he's really down to earth. They're very normal. I think he's got the same... He's suffering the same thing that his um, great-uncle, was it? Edward and Mrs Simpson? The Wallace and Simpson. Yeah, I think he's, he's got the same in it. Oh, this, yeah, the Wallace symptoms thing. Yeah, I know. Did you watch the? Have you watched The Crown on Netflix? I haven't. No, I, I, I've heard of it. That's really good, and it covers that. And and do you know what? You kind of feel for the guy. Yeah. The guy who abdicated. Yeah. Because he genuinely did love her. Yeah, I think. I think you know. And, I think that's just the same with Harry. He, he, he clearly loves. Yeah. Meghan, but she's she's not right for him. Nah, she's. An, I don't. She's got ulterior motive, hasn't she? Yeah. I mean, time will tell on that. I think. Well, who are we to judge? Yeah, absolutely. But but at the end of the day, they are, at the end of the day, I say to people like, people get starstruck, um, but ultimately, like, you know, I've met the Queen a lot of times. I've met Charles. I've met all of them, royalty to diplomats. But at the end of the day, and you're in a room with them, they're just people. Yeah, absolutely. They just happen to have a role or a job or a title, and they are yeah. same as me and you. They are just people. Yeah, and. You know, I can honestly say the royal family are really lovely people. They really are, they're, and they're they're, yeah. they're very I've, grateful. I've worked alongside yep. them in horse guards on the Queen's birthday parade mm-hmm. uh, and the like, and I've had just a wonderful people. Yeah, I mean to talk to like they're they're just very, oh yes, you know what I mean. It's almost like yeah. they're humbled a bit. They talk to you as an individual, yeah, and, and not as a subject. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what it comes yeah. down to. Exactly, and and. I think my favourite's Prince Philip because uh, he really is. He really is normal, isn't he? Yeah. He's, uh, he's he, lovely. He's so funny. He he tells it as it is. He really does, and I love that. <laughs> I absolutely love that because people don't do that anymore. Mm. But he does, and it's great. Yeah. And you know, and he doesn't mean anything bad by it, does it? He? he just speaks. He's great. Honestly, watch the Crown if you haven't seen the Crown. I will do. It's the area that he grew up in. Yeah. Yeah, it's the area. And bless him, because he's stuck by the Queen, isn't he? He's, you know, he's been number two, isn't he? Absolutely, yeah. He's been there, right. And he's 99. He's going to score a century. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call him to drive me home, obviously, <laughs> after the after being out for a drink. But um, <laughs> but no, they are lovely people. And But then ultimately, like, he's, you know, I, I've, on the film sets I've been on, like, I've been directed by Tim Burton, Edgar Wright, 
Matt Reeves, all these really famous Hollywood directors, and they are just people. And on set, they're just people, and they're normal people, but people think it's like, oh, I have people online going, oh, you've done this and that. I'm like, yeah, but they're just people, and the people... Well, they're just normal people. And it's it's about yeah. treating people decently. And I've noticed on film sets at the moment, when it comes to mental health and things, that it's really good. Mm. It's, there, it's, very, it's very supportive. Yeah of people and it's 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 good it's starting to come but but then it doesn't yeah it's not snowflakey you know you you can be you can be normal and understanding at the same time and i do try on like twitter and whatever promote and support charities and mental health and things and i've been doing that for a few years i've been part of a group that's we've raised half a million dollars for a suicide prevention charity on behalf of a film director whose daughter committed suicide mm. you know we've done all these things it's it's a good thing to do and i've i get i speak to a lot of people and some people look up to me and speak to me and I do my best. And it's about just talking about it and just being honest because it don't matter because I'm hoping one day this PTSD will quiet in a little bit or I'll learn to ignore it more again. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I dream every night. I have a, I wake up in the night. Yeah. I thought, every single night. You learn to live with it eventually. Yeah, and um, I just know what to avoid, what not to look at, think about, you know see a video online, you know what, this is looking like it's going to be something similar. Yeah. Just, just avoid, yeah. you know, and, and think of other things. But it's good to focus. And I think when you've got a hobby. Yeah, it's not for me. Like you've got your podcast hobby. Mm. I'm doing my little hobby, my paid hobby. And, you know, I'm trying to look into learning more things. It focuses your mind a bit better. And you realise there's more in the world than just everyday life. There's mm. things to look at. Like photography is a good thing to get into. You know, looking at colours and, and things. And it's, it sounds really hippie-ish, doesn't it? But yeah. it's not. And it's not a thing. So anyone who's struggling, I would say just speak to somebody, even if it's a stranger. I'm always, I talk to anybody, mate. I'll help anybody. You know, I actually I actually feel that. Absolutely. I think yeah. in hindsight, when I, when I was younger, I chose the police over the army. Yeah. Just because of my thought of helping people or wanting to help, like more of an, an initial impact, like on someone's life straight away. If I can, you know, you know, look after them or fix something for them. Yeah. And I think even now, even though I can't, if I can try and help people just by talking with them, it helps me as well because it makes me feel like I'm still doing something too. So I don't mind if anyone ever contacts me just for a chat, you know, or just just to say hello. It don't, don't, it's nice. It's good to talk. It's good to make friends and. I think if everybody realises that we're all the same and that no matter how tough you are, things happen and you've got to learn and get on with it. And So, yeah, I'm happy to for anyone who wants to chat to me. It's cool to me and I, I do it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just really bizarre. I get a lot of negativity from it as well, though, because yeah, like you can Google my name now and it comes up and it lists you as this person who does this, this and that. And then you get a lot of people but who really, really go for you for some reason. Like, I get a lot of negativity on Twitter. Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with people like that. But there you go. I know. Like, oh, look at you. Look at you in that film. You're nobody. Why are you in that film? And you're like, I don't care, mate. I got paid. Somebody has to be in it. Yeah, I don't care. I mean, put it this way. In the Batman film, I get my ass beat up by Batman. That's it. Yeah. But I think that's pretty damn cool. Well, yeah. How many people can say they've been beaten up by Batman? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't actually Batman. It was a stuntman in his outfit, but... But it's going to look like it's the Batman guy, and um, I'm just a geezer that gets his ass kicked. Yeah. But that yeah. for me, I got paid to get beat up by Batman. Can't fault that. That's great. I love it. I don't. I don't. I don't want to be famous. I don't want. 
I don't want to be Tom, uh, Tom Cruise or anyone like that. I don't want that hassle. You're bigger than he is. <laughs> well, only about an inch, probably. What is he, five foot five or something, can he? So, something like that. He's a, a proper little short ass. Yeah, I'm five eight, so. Anyway, Bill. Yes, yeah, really great to talk to you. Thanks for having me on, mate. I'm sorry it's dragged. No, it's it's been absolutely absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I just I, I just want to say, like, for you, I, I obviously we got to know each other really well in the hospital time, and we kept in contact. And um, I've still got the photo you gave me. Yeah. When you left hospital, remember? Yeah. Still got that semi draw, and um, I know what you've been through, and obviously because we had long chats for weeks and weeks, didn't we? Mm. And I'm, I'm actually proud of you for you've retired you've you know you're getting on with your life and you know you get your house new house and vote and done all the things you said you wanted to do and you're doing this and i think it's really good really really good because i know you struggle as well and um so yeah i am proud of you getting on with this mate i really really think you're doing great so well done mate thank you very much hopefully we'll we'll have another session and we'll talk about something totally different next time yeah yeah and hopefully when this covid ends we can actually get together and have that have a drink and have a proper chat That'd be brilliant. And go down the pub and have a proper beer. Anyway, thank you very much, Bill. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, mate, take care. I think you'd agree that Bill has given us a really good insight into what the Met Police do. Hope you found that very interesting. I did. If you did, please like, share and subscribe. By subscribing, you won't miss another episode. My episodes are released at 6 o'clock Greenwich Mean Time on a Sunday morning. So if you don't subscribe, log in on a Sunday morning to get the latest episode. Thank you for listening. <laughs>